Hello, my name is Lauren Consul, and I'm an attorney with the New York Prosecutors Training Institute, NIPTI. I am also one of two traffic safety resource prosecutors for New York State. I am glad to have John Kwasnowski, renowned reconstructionist, back with me today to discuss pedestrian collisions and provide prosecutors with some valuable tips when they are handling these types of cases. Before we get started, John, could you just give us some background for those listening that have not worked with you? Well, I'm a physicist by trade, and I taught at Western New England University for 31 years. I was just called by the DA's office in 1985 to look at a state police report and go down and testify about the scientific accuracy. And having done that, I worked for that DA for about 10 years and then started teaching and writing books. And now here I am. I'm retired from the university and Pretty much all I do is travel around the country training and doing seminars for police and prosecutors. And we're very lucky to have you. So thank you, John, for all the training and assistance you have provided over the years. As you know, we've had an uptick in pedestrian-involved crashes in recent years. And although we've recently made some progress with reducing those in New York State, they are still more prevalent than we'd like. So let's begin with discussing why pedestrian collisions can be so much more difficult to reconstruct than other types of collisions? Well, I think one big factor, Lauren, is that the amount of evidence that's produced by the impact itself is sometimes minimal and certainly is usually less evidence than would be a vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle collision or a vehicle-to-utility pole collision. The damage to the vehicle is sometimes not even observable. Of course, there are times when there's actual damage to the hood, the grill, the lights, the windshield. But I think that the biggest problem with reconstructing motor vehicle crashes is this lack of evidence that we usually have in other types of collisions. And that leads to limiting the methodologies that can be used to reconstruct a pedestrian crash. So methodologies that we might use for other crashes are not even available and we're limited to perhaps breaking evidence as one method, the throw distance of the pedestrian's body as another method. Of course, the event data recorder in the vehicle itself can be imaged and that still gives us data about the crash. And another method might be analysis of video, even if it's video not of the crash itself, but perhaps a few seconds before the crash when the vehicle passes a gas station or a traffic camera or something. And so video analysis might be available. But many of the methodologies for vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle crashes are just not available. And I think that, you know, is certainly a limitation. The biggest problem that I see in reconstructing crashes is the uncertainty in the movement of the pedestrian prior to being struck. So... You know, essentially when you get to the scene as a police officer responding, there's someone injured or fatal injuries. There's someone as the pedestrian who's at the scene, but trying to figure out from there, how did the pedestrian get there? Where did they come from? What was their exact path of travel? How fast were they walking? Those are all problematic and in some cases cannot be determined, and that leads to a large range of values having to be used. The other problem is what are called human factors. The driver's visibility is going to be an issue. The driver's perception reaction time is going to be an issue. The effects of impairment on that reaction time, 
of course, may be an issue. So I think the two biggest problems with Reconstruction are the uncertainty in the pedestrian's movement and the operator's human factors. And that, of course, you know, often involves having the defense bring in a human factors expert who opines about what the driver was thinking, what the driver was seeing, what the driver should have done. And of course, these are all defense opinions that are difficult to handle. So I think it's the combination of a lack of evidence and the uncertainties in both the pedestrian movement and the driver's mental abilities or mental behaviors. So, John, then I think that the culmination of everything that you just discussed would lead me to believe that witness statements are going to potentially be very crucial in these cases. And as we know, those present their own set of challenges. Are there any particular considerations that prosecutors should be looking for regarding witness statements in these types of cases? Well, I think the one thing that I see a lot of is a police report witness statement, but no place in the report is it identified where was the witness when they made their observations. So even if a scale drawing is produced, perhaps a second scale drawing could show the location of the witnesses, and that would be gathered at the time when the officer is taking a statement by asking very specifically, please show me where you were when you made your observations. Without that, I think the uncertainty of where the witness made their observation takes away the ability to corroborate the statement itself. So I think the police officer should definitely document where the witnesses are located and then also take a photograph from the witness's perspective because I think as a prosecutor, if you're reading a statement, you'd like to be able to look at that photograph and say, here's what the witness could see. Is the statement possible? In other words, could the witness have seen what was told in the statement? And that would be to avoid know, sort of imagining what happened or trying to figure out what happened and then stating to an officer in a manner that makes the officer believe it was an actual observation. What additional information should the prosecutor be looking for with regard to the environment of the crash? Well, I think the first obvious one is the road condition itself. One consideration is wet or dry, weather conditions, and so forth. And the other is to determine, are there any road defects that could have caused the vehicle to act erratically or to lose control? I would suggest it's essential for an officer to walk from the area where the impact occurred back in the direction from which the vehicle was coming, at least a distance of 300 feet, and to document any road defects or anything like potholes that may have caused the vehicle or the operator to experience trouble keeping control of the vehicle. And that should be in the report. The officer can prevent a lot of problems at trial by stating in the report that he or she did walk the scene and that they did or didn't observe any road conditions that may have been causative. I think also part of the crash environment is what is the driver's visibility approaching the location of the impact? Are there any parked vehicles that may have caused problems with vision? Are there any obstructions to view? Is there any glare from oncoming traffic? Is there sunlight as a glare factor? So I think the assessment of any environmental conditions that may have affected the driver's visibility 
is important to look for. And I think, again, there should be a photograph of the operator's perspective as they're approaching the impact so that as you're looking at the case later, you may look at the human factors part of it and at least be able to say, this is what the operator could have seen. So I think an important part is to document what was the operator's visibility and perspective. I mentioned park vehicles, and I think they're very important. And in some reports that I look at, there's a beautiful scale drawing, but there are no parked vehicles in the scale drawing. And yet, when the photographs of the scene are sent to me on a CD, there are parked vehicles. So that I suggest something to look for is whether there are parked vehicles on the scale drawings. And that means that the size of the vehicle and their location has been documented. It's something that doesn't seem real important at the time, but it may become important later when there's a problem with a possible obstruction to vision. And John, that actually leads me to another question regarding the perspective of the driver, pedestrian victim, and potential witnesses. We were discussing doing documentation as close as possible in time to the crash, but if that is not feasible, what would you recommend to get a comparable perspective? Well, I think the ideal thing is at the scene, of course, but the next best thing would be at the same time of day within as short a period of time, because that would allow that Yes, the sun may have changed position. Yes, the moonlight may be a little different, but not drastically different in a few days. If a number of months have gone by, then it may be necessary to wait until the same time of year, the same day and time of day to take a look at that perspective again. I don't think it's real critical a few days, but I think it is arguable that if you were several months away, that you would be you know, experiencing the same conditions. So certainly going back to the scene is an option. And I think, you know, to just make the conditions as close to possible as the time of the crash. And the location of the impact is very crucial in pedestrian cases. What should the prosecutors be looking for as evidence of where the collision occurred and where that point of impact actually is? I'll First of all, define that term you just used, point of impact. If you can picture a vehicle striking a pedestrian, if you could drop a plumb line down to the road between the point of contact on the vehicle, let's say a bumper, and the point of contact on the pedestrian, let's say their leg, if you could drop a plumb line down to the road, that point directly underneath the point of contact would be a point of impact. It's usually very hard to determine an exact point of impact. And so officers often use the term area of impact. So on a scale drawing, you might see a notation AOI or AOC, area of collision. And that, that's a more general area that might include a circle of a foot or two feet in radius, which means the police do not know an exact point where the contact took place, but they are able to determine a pretty accurate small area of impact. I think it's important to take a look at either the point of impact or area impact. First of all, as was it in the travel lane or not? If a person is walking in the travel lane, that is going to have something to do, I'm sure, with your state law with regard to what is the obligation of an oncoming vehicle and so forth. If the person is on the shoulder, I'm sure that's a completely different situation. 
with regard to negligence of the operator. So I think one important consideration for this point or area of impact is, was it on the travel portion of the road or was it on the fog line? If it's a situation where a pedestrian is crossing the street, I think then it's important to know the point or area of impact because it gives the reconstructionist an idea of how far the pedestrian had walked prior to being hit. How far had they gone across the road before they were hit? And that leads eventually to possible calculation of how much time did it take for the pedestrian to get to the point of impact. And of course, that connects to how much time did the defendant operator have to take an evasive action. The point of impact or area of impact is very important. And I think the evidence of it is sometimes very limited. There usually is some sort of debris from a collision with a pedestrian, although in a few cases I've worked on, there hasn't been any. But the debris field can give a reconstructionist an idea of where the impact happened. Shoes from the pedestrian, whether the pedestrian comes out of their shoes or whether the shoes were thrown as part of the impact. A scuff mark on the ground from the shoe. And then, of course, a mark on the shoe that might confirm that that caused the scuff on the ground. You mentioned eyewitnesses, and of course, eyewitnesses may be very helpful in not only identifying the point of impact, but sort of recreating the path and travel of the pedestrian. And finally, if we have video, because if we have video, we can go back to the scene, take a look at the video right at the scene, and very accurately sometimes determine the point or area of impact. But that point or area of impact is a very important factor in the reconstruction of the crash. And without it, it limits certain aspects of what a reconstructionist can do. And you mentioned when trying to determine that point or area of impact, the walking speed of the pedestrian. How important is that in doing the reconstruction of the crash? Well, the walking speed of the pedestrian ultimately leads to times that it took the pedestrian to get to the point of impact and time that the defendant driver would have to take an evasive action. Usually, if you see a string of what are called time distance calculations and avoidance calculations in a pedestrian case, one of the critical numbers is, other than the perception reaction time of the driver, one of the critical numbers is the walking speed of the pedestrian. And sometimes a range of numbers is available in the literature, and I suggest that a range should always be used because unless there's video evidence or some other way to corroborate what the exact speed was for the pedestrian as he or she was walking, it's really very vulnerable to pick a number from a chart or something and say, I'm assuming the pedestrian was walking this fast. Unless you have testimonial evidence from a witness or video evidence, I'd say a range of walking speeds is a must in terms of reconstruction, a high and low end. And so how important is it? It's important because it becomes the basis or the foundation for the time distance calculations, the avoidance calculations. And I think if a person is walking across the street, it's very, very important. If a person is walking in the same direction as the travel lane and is struck from the rear, then I'd say the walking speed is not of much significance at all because they present as something that has to be avoided by the operator. They stay in that position laterally from left to right, but they keep walking 
in the same direction as the vehicle is coming from behind. In that case, I don't think the walking speed is of much importance at all. But I guess to say how important is it, it's the basis for the time distance calculations in many cases. So it is the foundation. And I think prosecutors should be concerned about a motion to suppress those calculations if that walking speed that's used by the reconstructionist can't be validated or can't be defended. I know a human factors expert has loads and loads of literature. They have huge ranges of walking speeds from any number of studies. So I think the prosecutor should expect that a defense expert will come up with a different walking speed than the police did. And the police should be able to defend how they got their value or how they got their range of values. You previously mentioned tire mark evidence. Can we talk about that a bit more and how important it is in pedestrian collisions? Sure. Well, the first thing is that tire mark evidence in the form of braking evidence, either with locked tire marks, which are called skids, or anti-lock brake system, ABS, which are lighter and sometimes intermittent, either of those tire marks indicate some type of evasive action. They may occur before the impact or they may occur after the impact because of a delay in the operator's perception reaction time. I think the existence of braking evidence is confirmation that the operator at some point tried to do something and therefore had seen the pedestrian and did try to take an evasive action of some kind. I think the important features of the tire mark evidence are the length of each tire mark and being able to identify which tire mark was created by which tire, right front, left front, etc. I think it's important to photograph the tire marks. I think it's very important if it's visible to record in photographic form a tread pattern number of ribs in the tread of the tire itself. And of course, associated with tire mark evidence is the determination of friction. So that involves a drag factor measurement, either by a drag sled or an accelerometer. And that's going to be necessary for the reconstructionists also. And I would also mention particularly that ABS tire marking is so light that sometimes some of the tire marks are completely missing. So it would not be uncommon to see a scene where there are two ABS marks. They're lighter, they're intermittent, but there are no other two marks. It, it seems like there are two marks missing completely. It may be that those marks are just so light that you can't see them at all and they don't photograph. But I think in that case, when there are missing marks, a brake inspection is warranted to be sure that the brake system was operating and that all four brakes were operative, because then a reconstructionist can say, even though I only see two marks on the ground, all four tires were marking, and therefore what's called the brake percentage for the vehicle is truly 100%. Otherwise, if there are missing marks and there's no way to confirm those tires' brakes were operating, the reconstructionist may have to drop down to a 40 or 50 or 60% braking efficiency or braking percentage and get a much lower speed calculation. So I think with ABS, and most vehicles have ABS now, with ABS, whenever there are missing marks, I think it's incumbent upon the investigator to do a brake inspection to make sure all the tire brakes were operative 
because otherwise it's very simple that a defense expert would just come in and say, my opinion is that there are two marks, there are two tires braking, the other two tires were not operative, the brake percentage is not 100%, and all of a sudden you have something that seems like very common sense to call testimony. So I think the biggest thing about tire mark evidence is the difficulty of seeing the ABS marks and, of course, photographing them and then confirming that, in fact, all four tires were braking. Thank you, John. Now, shifting gears a bit, earlier you mentioned that you can, in some cases, calculate vehicle speed from video. This has sometimes been a point of contention with regard to how you do this and how accurate it is. Can you please tell us a bit more about that? Well, I've heard people testify. I've heard people present on this topic. And I think the biggest caveat always is the factors like the camera, the perspective of the camera, any parallax that might be involved with landmarks and using landmarks as positions for distance determinations. And of course, the time stamp on the video itself so that somebody viewing the video frame by frame can determine how much time is it between frames. I think those are all factors that people have concerns for when they're analyzing video. But I believe that it can be done. And I just looked at a case not more than six months ago out in Suffolk County. And I was on the phone with the prosecutor and talking to him about video analysis. And I described to him, be sure that you check the timestamp and be sure you have good landmarks and be sure the perspective of the camera doesn't introduce parallax and blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, let me tell you what my guy did. And he proceeds to talk about one of the lab people in Suffolk County by the name of Tom Zavesky. And I've worked with Tom several different times, and I've heard him present several different times. And uh, Tom is the real deal. Tom had done such a beautiful job of the video. Uh, and I'll describe to you what it is and his methodology, because I think Tom's methodology is very hard to attack because of his validation procedure. Tom had three different perspectives of an intersection from traffic cameras. The scenario is that a vehicle flies through the intersection and then has a collision. There are really good landmarks because you can see the vehicle cross the crosswalks stripes. You can see the vehicle reach a traffic island that juts out into the road. So it would be very easy to go back to that scene and measure the distance between the stripes for the crosswalk and then further up the road, this curbing for the traffic island. It would be very easy to do that accurately. Tom goes to the scene with police and they do that. He verifies the timestamp on the video, how many frames per second or how much time per frame. I can't remember how he did that, whether he did it by simply counting frames and timing it. And I want to say that was the way, but I'm not quite sure that was the way. In any case, he now had a really good distance measurement within the video, and he had a very accurate time for each frame of the video. He takes a police cruiser and drives through the scene at a known speed and creates a new video. Again, drives at a different speed, creates a new video. Drives through the third time at a different speed and creates a video. So now he has created three test videos with the same camera 
the same location, the same perspective, the same street markings, the same traffic curbing, everything identical to his unknown situation that he's trying to solve. He does the three test crashes and shows that they all give speeds that are right on the nose. That validates the methodology. And now he just analyzes the video he has from the traffic cameras from the scene where the crash happened at the time of the crash involving the defendant's vehicle, and he gets a beautiful calculation of speed. So now it's almost impossible to attack on a technical basis the analysis he did of the crash scene and the defendant's vehicle because he has three independent test samples that came out right on the nose when he used the same methodology. So I'd encourage officers not to be dissuaded by criticisms that say, well, you have to know this and you have to know that. And if you don't know this and you don't know that, think about this idea of using a method and then validating it yourself with a vehicle traveling at a known test speed, because I see that as bulletproofing your calculations. And I think Tom did just a super job. I taught with him last summer and was able to sort of comment on that with him. In the state of New York, I don't know of other people that do it. I'm sure there are. But if people want somebody to talk to about this, it's Tom Zavesky in Suffolk County, and I recommend him very highly. Thanks, John. That's very helpful. Now, turning to the topic of event data recorders, EDRs, which are sometimes referred to as black boxes for cars. How helpful is the data from an EDR in a pedestrian collision? Well, they can be, yes. Usually in a pedestrian collision, the airbags will not deploy, though I have seen a few cases where the bags did deploy at very high speeds. But let's say that it's a collision where there's not a lot of front-end damage to the vehicle. The airbags do not deploy. The event data recorder still has the ability to record data, but it will be recorded in what's called a non-deploy or a near-deploy event. So the data is locked into memory. It can subsequently be overwritten by another near-deploy event, or it can subsequently be erased by just starting and stopping the car, turning on the ignition, turning off, and that requires typically 250 cycles of the ignition. And then the temporary data in the non-deploy storage will go back to all zeros. So yes, it can be very helpful, and particularly because it can, matter of fact, I was on the phone this morning with an officer in Enfield, Connecticut. It can give information about when braking was applied in a case where there is no brake mark evidence. So it can give the time before the collision when the brakes were applied, and that can tell you about what the driver was doing, even though there is no tire marking on the road that would show any braking evidence at all. Some of the newer EDRs also record steering information. So it'll record steering as plus or minus in degrees. So plus might be clockwise for the steering wheel, minus would be counterclockwise. And this can be helpful when the operator has been acting erratically before the impact and maybe swerved off the road and hit a pedestrian so that the EDR may show that this steering maneuver happened at a specific time pre-impact and be consistent with going off the road. So in addition to braking and steering information about the behavior of the operator, it also may indicate pre-impact speed for the vehicle 
and it may indicate something unusual that's happening within the vehicle that some boxes can record. So I'd say yes, the EDR information can be very important, although in a case where there's a slight impact and it's not very hard, there may be no trigger for the EDR as a, even a non-deploy, and so the box may just not show anything. One thing I think the prosecutor should be aware of is the imaging or taking information from the box. It really doesn't remove the information from the box. It just takes a snapshot of what's in there. And that's done by a person who's trained to image the box called a technician. The technician goes to class for maybe two or three days. They learn how to operate the equipment. They learn how to use a computer to image the information. And then there's a subsequent qualification called analyst. And that usually involves another two or three or four days where the person is trained how to read the image, how to read the information that is downloaded by the technician. So I give a heads up to prosecutors that if you're going to have a witness testify about the meaning of the data from the EDR, you should be asking that officer, have you been certified as an analyst? Now, there are some cases where training does not result in certification, so the person may still be very capable but not technically have a certification, but I think that's something the prosecutor should be looking at. And then finally, the software for downloading or imaging the EDR is changing continuously. I mean, like from week to week, there may be changes in the software. And so I think it's important that the EDR be downloaded or imaged with the most recent version of the software. And that would avoid a motion to suppress or a motion in limine that a defense attorney would be told by his expert, they haven't even downloaded this with the most recent software. Their data may be wrong. Now, that's not true. The data on an older version of the software would not be wrong, but there may be more data available on a newer version of software. So I think there are a couple of things the prosecutor should keep in mind. Is the expert witness they're going to use an analyst? And is the software the most recent version of the software? Thank you, John. Is there anything else about the vehicle itself that prosecutors should be looking at? Well, of course, the damage to the vehicle and the documentation of that damage. And the biggest thing I see there is bad photographs. So there might be a collision to the front end of the vehicle in a strike with a pedestrian, and the pictures are taken from six feet away, and no close-ups of scratch marks or abrasions on the car or blood spatter on the car. So I guess just looking for more detail in terms of contact between the pedestrian and the car itself. And then I would tell prosecutors to be aware that the vehicle itself may have had a failure or a defect or a fault, and as a result, the driver loses control and hits a pedestrian. I have not seen that much in pedestrian cases, although I have seen one case where the vehicle veered off the road and struck a pedestrian, and the defense was that there was a mechanical failure of the vehicle itself. So I think one thing that prosecutors should look for in reports is whether or not the police investigators have checked for recalls on the vehicle, 
that might cause the vehicle to swerve or lose control. So when they go to a site called NHTSA.gov, they'll see that they can look up recalls on a vehicle. And when they look for recalls on a vehicle, they can also look for what are called technical service bulletins, TSBs. And those are just below the level of recalls. So those are conditions of the vehicle that may ultimately be causative for a collision. They just have not been resulting in enough collisions to make it rise to the level of a recall. And then there's also a category on the NHTSA website called complaints. And complaints are usually things that are not causative of a crash, but I have seen a case where the complaint gave rise to ultimately a logical inference that that was what would cause a crash like this. So I think prosecutors should be looking in the police report for, did the officer check for recalls, technical service bulletins, and complaints? And if not, the prosecutor should be asking the reconstructionist, will you go back and check on those for me? And please print them out if there are any, and I'd like to see whether any of them have any possibility of being causal. Otherwise, I think that's just a potential loaded gun sitting on the table, and it's certainly is a situation where a prosecutor would not want to go ahead with a prosecution when a recall or technical default or technical failure might cause the crash. So I'd say, yes, take a look in addition to the need for evidence of damage, take a look at the possibility of the vehicle itself causing the collision with the pedestrian. Thank you. And for those of you new to traffic safety or unfamiliar with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, the website John was referring to is NHTSA.gov, N-H-T-S-A.gov. You'll find an abundance of resources for highway safety there, along with the information John referenced. Thank you so much for joining us. That will wrap up part one of this podcast, so please keep an eye out for the second part. And John, thank you again for the helpful information for all you do to help prosecutors and law enforcement. I'm very, very glad to be helpful, Lauren. Do pretty soon. Thank you.